can I live? And I'm saying to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. And thanks again to The Breakfast Show. But now it's time for Discovery, the National Science Show, bringing you all the science you simply won't hear by listening to John Laws. This week, we'll be sinking our teeth into death and taxes, coronal mass ejections, and a new film called What the Bleep. So stick around. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. And once again, welcome to Discovery, the National Science Show. I'm Matthew Clark, and this week we'll be ploughing through a couple of interesting topics such as escaping the inevitability of death, space weather, yes there is weather up there, and we'll take a brief look at a new film that mixes science, spirituality, and is making a bucket load of cash in the States. But before we can get into any of that, here's your weekly Discovery Science News with Catherine B. Hag. Negligence of a US lab that can endanger the world population has been uncovered. Some of you may remember the 1957 Asian flu pandemic, which killed over 2 million people. Well, it is thought to reoccur again in a silly act made in February 2005 by the College of American Pathologists, CAP, a professional body which helps pathology laboratories improve their accuracy by sending them unidentified samples of various germs to identify. CAP sent a strain of influenza A to different parts of the world. And here's the best part. Instead of choosing a strain from the hundreds of recently circulating influenza A viruses, the firm chose one of the most lethal flu viruses in history, the 1957 pandemic strain. And what is more, they sent the flu testing kits to some 3,700 labs around the world. The worst thing in this stuff-up by the College of American Pathologists is that the virus not only was transported unsafely, but has actually escaped from a kit at the High Containment Lab in Winnipeg, Canada. Such an escape could spread worldwide. We can only now hope that it will not escape to the outside world. Yes, we are allowed to research stem cells, but the catch US President Bush made is we are only allowed to research cell lines already in existence. The reason for this is the so-called government can calm anti-abortion supporters as no more embryos would be used to make cell lines. This already has its problems, but what is more frustrating is that all the already existing cells may be contaminated by animal cells. What this means is that these stem cells cannot ever be used in therapies as the human immune system will reject them, believing they are foreign bodies. This also means all the research carried out on the existing lines are now invalidated. 
But lucky for us, Paul de Sousa and his team at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland, where Dolly the sheep was cloned, have produced what they say are the first animal-free embryonic stem cells. What this team did was use purified human protein and layers of human neonatal foreskin cells as nutrients and growth factors to help the stem cells survive. This research is looking promising so far. However, what would really solve all the problems and hassles would be for the Australian and US government to change their policy on new stem lines and allow for new lines to be created, which many believe is long overdue. Sexual harassment is not just an issue for the human world. A lot of research has uncovered that animals too have problems. Research on red-sided garter snakes by Professor Richard Shrine from the University of Sydney discovered how females are harassed by often hundreds of male snakes trying to copulate as soon as they emerge from hibernating. Many female snakes actually suffocate under these large mating balls. Pheromones given off by the animal are also important in how much a female gets sexually harassed. This was highlighted when Shine and his team painted repellent pheromones on some females to make them less attractive to males. The observation was that the females painted with repellent pheromones were ignored by the males and able to get away from the mating ball faster, giving them an advantage. Females also tried to outmaneuver and lose suitors by sprinting forward, turning suddenly and stopping, while the males continued in their initial direction and passed this sedentary female. Female snakes are not the only animals to have problems with sexual harassment. There are many other animals with deviant sexual behaviour. For example, dolphins are thought to gang-rate female dolphins, and the male moose subjects his partner to excessive biting, nipping and hurting during mating. This supports Shrine's theory that sexual conflict occurs in other species apart from humans. Is there such a thing as a gay gene? Research in 2002 showed that all it takes is a change in temperature for male flies to switch from being heterosexual to suddenly courting other males. This has enabled scientists to study how some regions in the brain may be involved in determining sexual orientation. What is even more fascinating is the neurons that are involved in sensing pheromones, a naturally occurring substance the body excretes, which help us choose who we are attracted to, plays an important role in fly courtship behaviour. These findings have sparked up the debate of whether or not homosexuality has a genetic base. This has huge implications in our society. If a so-called gay gene is found, will it lead to homosexuals being accepted into society as it is natural for them? Or will the research be used to show homosexuality is a genetic defect? These are scary issues that we still need to discuss. You're listening to Discovery. Death and taxes. That old cliche dealing with life's annoying inevitabilities. Taxes. Well, there's not much you can do there. And in any case... This is a science program, but avoiding the grim reaper altogether, Marion Carruthers looks into her scientific crystal ball and discovers the future is murky. Back in the 80s, when I was reading Dolly magazine and teasing my hair into a big buffer knot on the side of my head, futurologist Ray Kurzweil predicted the internet, then a little-known government communications network, would become a global big thing. In the 90s, while my hair moved into messy grunge, 
Ole Ray was busy developing the first flatbed scanner, the first text-to-speech synthesizer. He was inducted into the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame, received the 500,000 Levelson MIT Prize, received the 1999 National Medal of Technology from President Clinton. The list goes on and on. Now, my hair has accepted its inherent all-around messiness, but Ray has moved on yet again. This time round, he predicts that the next big thing is nothing less than eternal life. In fact, Ray's upcoming book, co-authored with Terry Grossman, MD, is called Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever, and broadly states that eternal life for you and me can be realised if three bridges are crossed. The three steps to eternal life. Sounds like a selling point on late t night TV. So, according to Ray, what must we do to live forever? Step one is to stay in tip-top condition. Some people say this is easy, a balanced diet, exercise, and avoid getting run over by trucks. Coatswold takes this a little further by taking 250 different dietary supplements a day, including alpha-lipoic acid, grapeseed extract, milk thistle, and ginkgo bilboa. He also says a big no to caffeine, which can't be too much fun. Kurtzwell also swears by his weekly intravenous infusions of phosphatidylcholine 4, which new scientists quote him as saying, rejuvenates all the body's tissues by restoring useful cell membranes. Step two of this process also involves solving various medical hurdles, such as resolving how people get cancer and how to remedy cancers for the various types of cancers and genetic propensities. Of course, diet would link in with this step, as the risk of developing some gastrointestinal cancers are thought to be affected by the amount of fruit and vegetables eaten. Some cancers, such as leukaemia, are not thought to be linked to diet at all, and some cancers, like cervical cancer, are thought to have a viral base. Adding to this complexity is that the susceptibility between individuals does vary. Moving on to step three is a bit more advanced. What am I saying here? It's a lot more advanced. It involves recruiting a nanoscale robot army to completely replace your digestive system. Yep, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking here, and that's not in my lifetime, buddy. But nanotechnology is starting to take off, and it's not just in the research stage. For a few nanotech products are already in cancer clinics, particularly as drug delivery vehicles. In fact, Nabraxane, which was approved for use in the US in January, uses nanoparticles to deliver breast cancer drugs. So that's what you need to do. Look after your diet and exercise, solve those tricky medical dramas like trucks and cancer, and invent a team of nanoscale robots to replace your pestically inefficient digestive system. Simple, really. Thanks for that, Marion. Anyone for a coffee?
That was Cat by the Sugar Cubes. Hello, this is David Bellamy. Honestly, it is. My favourite animal is sea otter. And my favourite community science show, what else but discovery? Next up, we have Taylor Bildstein talking with Dr. Hilary Kane, investigating the effects of solar wind and space weather. My name is Dr. Hilary Kane, and I study the sun. I'm interested in energetic particles and phenomena that affect us on Earth. It's um, now called space weather. What is space weather? There's a constantly flowing material or gas from the sun that's flowing past the earth, we call it solar wind. And the solar wind is highly variable. And sometimes there are phenomena that we call coronal mass ejections that disrupt the normal interaction between the solar wind and the earth's magnetic field and create problems. The um, effects of these geomagnetic storms can be quite severe. Sometimes spacecraft can fall out of their orbit it's also dangerous for astronauts to be in space when you have these high energy particles that can come from the sun. There's a whole set of other effects as well. We understand how the effects occur, but we can't yet predict accurately when one of them is going to happen. Can you give me some other examples where processes here on Earth, especially ones that affect us in society, might be affected by coronal mass ejections? Well, the most obvious one is a power failure. Because if you have a big geomagnetic storm, you get currents in uh, the electrical grids and it can blow out transformers and you can end up with power failure. The classic example that people always quote was an event that occurred in March of 1989 in which Quebec City was without power, 9 million people without power on a Monday morning in March. And of course March is the middle of winter and Quebec is pretty cold. The other problem is you can also have disruption of communications. So they had this peculiar situation, I think it was at the same time, when the police force in California trying to communicate with each other were actually getting signals from police in Minnesota. So the police communications got disrupted. Another thing that can be disrupted is ship to shore, so that the military trying to communicate with their ships out at sea can have problems too. So how do you study these phenomena? I have a colleague at the Goddard Space Flight Centre in the United States who I work very closely with and I'm often asking him for, for data sets that I need. Um, I use the wind spacecraft because that has a radio experiment on it. I have used data from a spacecraft called Ulysses. Ulysses is interesting because it's in an orbit that takes us to the high regions above the Sun that we've never had access before. I tend to do a lot of correlative work where I try to study multiple occurrences and look for general patterns. What are your major concerns for the future of space science? Well, we keep new experiments going up. What we really, really want is a spacecraft going close to the sun. From the kind of work that I do, studying energetic particles, what you'd observe when you're really close to the sun and what you observe right here at Earth can be totally different because those particles and their properties are affected by the medium that they interact with coming from the Sun to the Earth. In fact, I'm embroiled in a debate on this right now. Some people are claiming they measure these particles when they get to the, to the Earth 
and they assume they know how long they took to get from the sun to the earth and they say, aha, they left the earth at such and such a time, now we're going to see what else was happening at the sun at that time and they find not much. And so instead of assuming that they've made a miscalculation and how long they think, you know, how long the particles took to get from the sun to the earth, they're now invoking some other kind of mechanisms. Whereas, you know, I've said, well, I think you've made a mistake that in fact the time that you think they left the sun is incorrect and they actually left earlier in conjunction with the other phenomena. But that kind of debate could be very simply resolved if we could get a spacecraft really close to the sun and, and see things before they've had time to really interact with the, the medium between the sun and the earth. What do you love most about your work? Ah, the challenge, you know, trying to understand. I mean, I think that's the basic of all science, you know, what makes it work and to do some kind of analysis where all of a sudden you say oh yes it works you know I, I've, I think it should be like this I do a correlation and it comes out and that's really exciting yes it works Dr Hilary Kane thank you it's a pleasure thank you Taylor Bilstein talking with Dr Hilary Kane 60 second science Sydney is drying up fast left with a few options the next idea could be declaring war on clouds themselves. By shooting rounds of certain chemicals into clouds, it is possible to intercept their cargo of precious rain. This process is called cloud seeding. In July this year, China successfully relieved a drought in its Henan province with the help of this technology. But there have been many accidents and failures in the past, which has led it to being largely untested and unproven. In August 1952, the British Air Force undertook such an operation which caused abnormal flooding in the Bedfordshire region. The rain swept away much of the town and killed 35 people and as a result Operation Cumulus was suspended indefinitely. Similar technology also replenishes our snowfields. But how about Sydney? According to the results from the Chinese trials it may be possible to milk more than 100 millimetres of rain in a few days. However, cloud seeding is controversial because it takes away the rain from where it was naturally intended, a new problem known as rain theft. Sabin Zahirovich from Ashfield Boys High School. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science. It's film review time here on Discovery, but this time Chris Stewart has decided to review a film he hasn't even seen yet. Chris, what's the story? Well, you might have heard that there's a little film around at the moment called What the Bleep Do We Know? Now, I have heard some of that, yes. It's, it's written in, in funny characters. It looks like it's kind of written in physics equations. It's weird. Um, this is a little independent film which began life as... Um, a film that a couple of people put together and they couldn't find anyone to take it so they took it to their local independent center in the states and said play this one for us go on you know, be a sport and the guy said all right look if you can sell 1600 tickets over the next week then you know we'll we'll uh, leave you on for a little bit longer since then it's made over 10 million dollars in the united states it's become this huge phenomenon and um it's just come to australia so it's about to uh, about to open up on our screens 
in this country. So I had a bit of a chat with uh, a guy who is one of the first people to have seen the film in Australia. I haven't seen it yet, so it's not really a film review from me. It's kind of secondhand, right? There's a guy called Mike Ellis, Dr. Mike Ellis. He's a medical practitioner down in Melbourne. He specializes in mind-body medicine and quantum healing. He's also uh, involved in a peace organization called the Center for Change. This is a guy who's really into the wavelength of this film. So let's let him introduce the film for us. Well, the film centers around a girl called Amanda, who's really disillusioned and bitter about her life and about betrayal in her previous marriage. And it starts with her suddenly going kind of sort of down a rabbit hole, you know? And it's a whole series of events occur which change her perception of reality and make her realize the addictions and the unhappiness that she has can be changed for her hold and her understanding of what nature reality is and ability to change her reality and understanding that we can change our reality. Now, we've seen films along these lines before. I mean, the most recent one that springs to mind that um, Down the Rabbit Hole, I believe, is a line directly from it, not from Lewis Carroll originally, which was <laughs> The Matrix. Um, but this film's a little bit different because this film is actually involving starring and uh, and proclaiming modern science isn't it yeah, it's a wonderful series of interpolations with people like steve wolf like candace pert like joe dispenza who are these people tell me some of these there's names. some wonderful um atomic physicists tim wolf is a, a, psycho a psychotherapist and a atomic physicist candace pert is a very well-known biochemist who understands the nature of molecules of emotion so where does the, the link between the science and, if you like, the spirituality come in? What is the link here? Well, the link is, the, is quantum. The link is that there's a paradigm shift in the way we perceive our reality. The paradigm shift is stating that we, in fact, create our reality, that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle states that the observer influences the observed in the sense that we, when we see something, we can actually influence the event phenomenal reality around us and we have a choices to make when we live day to day and in the film it shows Amanda initially with all these different potential selves that she can walk into that she is at the same time and she chooses one path which is not necessarily her full potential so is the idea that given uh, in quantum mechanics, in modern physics as we know it, yeah. that um, there are many different realities and, uh, and the, the quantum uncertainty basically says we end up in one of these realities but there are many different potentials. Is the film saying we can choose which reality we're turning up in? So the film is saying we can choose reality and also create a reality. So we can, the quantum reality is a fluid sort of omnipresent reality based on the self-referential biological process of the universe. The universe is no longer dead, it is living, and we are really part and parcel of this biological process. And in the process, um, we can influence our reality because our minds are very much tied up and interconnected with the totality around us. Our brains, in fact, serve as a, our whole body is a hologram of the universe. We have much more power than we think we have. And the film starts bringing in these concepts of, um, of the way our, our, our whole body is an interconnected wholeness in the sense of Candice, uh, Candice Pert talks about that every time we have a thought, our whole body is irradiated with that thought in terms of molecules of emotion called neuropeptides. So as well as showing the interrelationship between our mind and body, it also shows our relationship between ourselves and, and the people around us and the way we create the reality around us. 
So that was Dr. Mike Ellis, who, uh, as I said, is a quantum healer and a specialist in mind-body medicine down in Melbourne. Now, he's obviously well into the themes of this film. I've got to say, as a physicist myself, I'm finding the whole science meets spirituality thing a little bit hard to handle. But look, I'm not going to judge too much until I've seen the film. Probably the thing that gets me going the most, though, is just all of the words that we're dropping in here. We're talking about, you know, the, the link here is quantum. Quantum what? We don't know. Heisenberg's uncertainty. That's always good for a phrase. We're a hologram of the universe. I, I don't know what this means. Paradigm shift was in there as well. And I'll just finish off with a quote from uh, a review which was in a, a US paper, that the Star-Telegram, where they said, this film is, is all very well and good, but it should be noted that much of what the bleep, the film, much of what this film tells us is nothing that a good introductory college philosophy course couldn't, of course, but it's got better special effects. Anyway, stay tuned because we'll have a review down the track. Yes, stay tuned because a review of what the bleep in coming weeks will be coming up in Discovery. But if you're really keen, check out www.whatthebleep.com.au for session times and independent cinema, hopefully near you. Sadly, it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Discovery. If you'd like some more information on any of the stories we featured today, if there's a topic you'd like us to investigate, or if you'd like to endorse us to be the next pontiff, you can drop us a line on discovery at 2SER.com. Warming the seats on this week's show were Catherine Biag, Chris Stewart, Marion Carruthers, and Taylor Bilstein. This week, Discovery was produced by Chris Stewart. Up here in the new and improved studios of 2SER Sydney. We're also broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Matthew Clark, and make sure to join us next week for more science news and excitement on Discovery. QSCR 107.3 FM. From the celebrated cult radio, book and television series comes The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Starring Martin Freeman, Sam Rockwell, Most Def and John Malkovich. What is this thing? It's the guide. It's got everything you need to know to survive in the universe. The 2SER six-buck flick advanced screening of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has now sold out. But don't panic. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy opens in cinemas everywhere, Thursday, April 28. Stay tuned for the next 2SER 6 Uplink. Hear those famous shrieking strings from Hitchcock's immortal thriller Psycho when the Sydney Symphony performs...